You're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app, and Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number 42 of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Sarah. In our last episode, Colin sat in Sarah's chair as the two of us look back at the lasting impact of the Snowden leaks. Hard to believe it's been 10 years. Today, we're diving into the esoteric world of protective intelligence. For public figures and those of prominent status, the threat of attacks from bad actors is real and constant. And our guest today will be giving us some insight into exactly what those threats look like, and along the way, passing on some information on how we can all do better at keeping a lower profile online. Olivia Arnotts, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to talk and, like you said, help some people maybe even improve their personal cybersecurity status and just chatting about how this really impacts you know, everybody, not only ultra high net worth individuals and business owners, but just everybody, kids and families alike. Definitely. All right, Sarah, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's open up a case file on protective intelligence. So Olivia, this is one of those areas where I guess a lot of people don't really know is a profession that exists. And so first of all, I guess for everybody to know in the audience, you are a licensed professional investigator in the state of Texas. Yes, sir. Okay. And according to the always reliable Wikipedia, <laughs> protective <laughs> intelligence, they say is a subset of executive protection and a type of threat assessment. So in particular, it's a protective method of identifying, assessing, and mitigating possible threats to a client. So it's meant to reduce the ability of an individual from getting close enough to attack the client or even the likelihood of them deciding to attack. So based on that, what is your definition of protective intelligence? How would you describe it, Olivia? I'm actually pretty proud of Wikipedia. That's a pretty good representation of <laughs> it what came I would through say. today. <laughs> yep. Uh, I love to say that it's one of those intentionally vague terms that means a lot of different things. It really matters who I'm talking to and what we're talking about. Because for me, it's not as focused on the physical threat, which it, that is a factor, but also focused on the cyber threats, reputational harm that, that occurs online or online footprint that's just leaking a lot of personal and proprietary data that allows for these bad actors to maybe steal the identity and take donations from, from their supporters or convince one of their staff members to meet them somewhere or give them money. That's the other side of things as well. It's, it's about the cybersecurity, the online footprint reduction, physical security and crisis response kind of all wrapped up into one. Before we uh, get into what you currently do, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background. We were chatting, I guess, a few weeks ago in preparation for this episode, and you were talking about your history of where you were, I guess, in the Army at some point, doing signals intelligence, and then leading you to this point where you're working in, in the protect intelligence field. So maybe you can get, kind of give us a background and kind of what led you to this, this point today. Uh, of course. So I uh, I kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere, a tiny little town of 400 people and opportunities from there seemed limited to me, but computers started to exist. And I got really into that as, as a young kid and third grade, I'm, I'm in the computer club that, you know, we take apart the systems and put them back together and make sure they work. And just learning the unlimited World Wide Web and what's out there just really interested me. So I knew one of my best choices was to join the service. And the army was just what caught my eye. My brother's in the Navy, so I had to be better than him. That's mainly why I went army. I'm like, I'm not quite tough and humble like the Marines, but I could do army, you know? 
Um, so I enlisted the earliest you legally can is like 16 and 11 months, I believe with parental consent. And, and I did it. And, um, fortunately had an uncle in the army who told me not to be an MP military police because it wouldn't have been that fun, but I went into private or I went into, uh, as a signals intelligence analyst. So I was a 35 November, um, signals is a very vague term. You know, people don't even know really what that means, but it's anything you can imagine from weapon systems, vehicles, communications, anything that requires a signal that bounces from somewhere to somewhere, I have an expertise in that. And so I got very fortunate, went to Hawaii for my first duty station, tasked a mission right away, which jumped headfirst at 17 into this, but also enjoyed the beaches, so I can't complain. <laughs> and I left the service after one contract, not because I didn't love it. I absolutely did. It was you know everything I thought it could be and more, and the opportunities it, it created for me are, are just unbelievable. So go, I'm repping for the Army right now. <laughs> But I was also a dual military spouse, and uh, that's difficult. Just trying to stay in one place together, trying to, and we're different MOSs. So I left the service and I went into corporate security. I jumped into a role with ExxonMobil. I was a team of four, and we were basically in charge of the security incident response uh, center for all of ExxonMobil's activities operationally, globally. And we would kind of monitor for mostly physical incidents and respond to those and protect. And I felt that it was kind of reactive. There wasn't a whole lot of proactivity allowed in the corporate security space. I'm like, hey, something's about to happen. And they're like, well, let me know when it does. And that just kind of drove me crazy. So I moved into private intelligence. I worked for a private intelligence agency that I I must keep vague, but it really opened my eyes to the ways uh, civilians with interesting and unique skill sets can still support agency work, still support law enforcement still can kind of fill that service role. And so that's what started Project ZF eventually. Uh, I won't jump into that. I'll let you guys talk for a minute. But that's kind of my story and how I have the smorgasbord of security skills. When you think about the people that are in this nondescript kind of van with the shaded windows sitting outside your house with the parabolic microphone, does that loosely fall under signals intelligence too, where you're trying to listen into a conversation from outside? Or is my imagination I, I would honestly well? say no. It's more so I would be in a remote position, far, far away from this, but I may be able to access certain types of data by analyzing uh, the signals. And that would give me information um, on whatever is happening, whether it's, can't say too much about how it works, but sure. you know, if I want to know something, I, I don't have to be right next to it with my ear pressed to a, to a screen or to a megaphone, you know what I mean? It's more so accessing things from, from far away. Which is great because, you know, me getting deployed was not even really a consideration. I'm like, no, I'm going to live in Hawaii. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, everything I do is safe behind a screen. It's still definitely James Bond-esque. We can Very pretend. Cool. We can pretend, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it can be. I mean, the, you know, the way that we've used this skill set, uh, it, it can feel James Bondy because we try to focus on, you know, dismantling criminal organizations and in creative ways. We maybe can't get the head guy for human trafficking. That's just difficult to prove, difficult to prosecute, especially unless you want to depend on the victims, because unfortunately, the system is victim reliant uh, most of the time with these kind of convictions. Um, but if we can get in for RICO Act violations or money laundering or tax evasion, that's where I would focus. And so I look at this guy, okay, I know what he's doing is wrong, but I'm going to focus on all these other ways we can creatively prosecute this person and possibly disrupt the organization get the attorney's license taken away, get their CFO fired, you know, and then you start to kind of be able to dismantle their operations. And so that's what we try to do. That's where I get to feel like the cool guy, but still done behind my screen. (laughs) Safe distance. Awesome. So like with that background and everything, what attracted you specifically to the career in protective intelligence? 
because I like how vague it is, I like how broad it can be. I realized very quickly, you know, how many organizations have security teams that are 50 people and but there's just so many so much restriction there's not a lot of crossover but with protective intelligence it's a crossover it's a good mix of physical security cybersecurity online protection and i liked that it all in one place um, because to me that's how you create an effective security system is by having all of those different aspects together and so i think protective intelligence was interesting to me because i do enjoy and i and i do have the skill sets for both the physical and cyber side and i like to put them together very cool from what we were sort of researching and stuff a pi analyst work can it's sort of like generally broken into three areas it, it was identity assess manage and mitigate. So what is sort of a day in the life of a protective intelligence analyst look like? Oh, every day is different, <laughs> which is also the best part because some of my clients are ultra high net, high net worth individuals. Some of my clients are nonprofits. Some of my clients are attorneys or um, even just people who have been defrauded in situations like that. So it depends on the casework. But like you said, originally we wanted to just jump into it. What are we dealing with? What are we looking at? Um, if, if I wanted to start a new relationship with a company, I'd do a vulnerability assessment. So I do a little stalking of them, their team, their board of directors, their families. I'm really looking to see what's out there about you that's brain damaging or puts you at risk for a physical attack or a cyber attack. How easily can I imitate you or steal information from your social media to trick you into thinking I'm somebody you know? And so then I would kind of create a list of actionable items. Okay, here's how we're going to resolve this and improve this. And beyond that, you know, you put that plan into place. And the last step would be to audit it to ensure it's continuing to work, improve it. The threat landscape is always changing constantly. And so just always consistently monitoring for the things that you originally found and more and just kind of keeping your, your wide net out for any types of threats or risks or vulnerabilities that might come up. So you've sort of mentioned like a range of the types of people that are your clients. So is it what are the types is like celebrities, powerful business professionals, politicians? Like what is it? It's everybody. Everybody you just said. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, You know, there is, you know, political opposition research. uh, When you say politicians, sometimes it's executives where they just need they need to know that there is not an insider threat risk or perhaps there has already been an insider threat risk. Say there's a wire fraud incident that occurred and they feel that this may have inside job. You know what I mean? I can go in and start to identify anybody who may have shell companies, anybody who has transactional or business transactions that may be a little bit weird. I can start to point those things out. So then the executive has more awareness of what's going on within their own realm because they don't know everything about everybody. And, and a simple background check that you can pay 50 bucks for isn't going to tell you anything about that person unless they've been convicted of a crime. Oh, um, and so what we do is just a lot more intensive a lot more analytic and it kind of prepares my clients but some of my favorite clients I'll shout them out they're two former female prosecutors who now run a law firm supporting victims of sexual abuse and so sometimes these women or men are survivors of trauma from their childhood that maybe they were victimized through a church camp for example or through a school but they don't know their their abuser's name they know the nickname that they had or the coach name. And so we do the work to figure out who the identity of this person might be and how we can possibly prove that a crime occurred. And so those are some of the clients I support. How many clients do you usually have going at one time? It varies quite a lot as well, because some clients only need a simple background check or a background check with, with the risk analysis. And so I might be able to do a bunch of cases for them in a month while still supporting another client that may be uh, on a full-time basis. And it's just completely different kind of work set 
And we have a small team of, of very trusted people that are mostly all prior mill, prior fed, federal agents, and they want to do something good with themselves after their time in service and try to find good things to work on. And I don't imagine, Olivia, that you probably did any research on us before we started. <laughs> and if you did, please don't talk Never. about it. <laughs> I won't say it online. Uh, no, I love when I'm first meeting people or working with people. Sometimes I will send them a little anonymous email with like whatever I can find. And then be like, okay, now's the time for everybody to check their emails. And if anybody has questions about what to remove, let me know. <laughs> it usually gets a good, good laugh out of the room because people feel a little embarrassed and, you know, they, they know what I know, but nobody else does. So Olivia, with all these high profile clients that you work with, I'm curious, how do they find you? Is it through just word of mouth referrals? Almost exclusively word of mouth. I think my website might actually be useless, uh, I'll be honest. <laughs> I like look at the web traffic. I'm like, nobody? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. But mostly word of mouth. I love to LinkedIn network. That's where I mostly, I'm, you know, I meet people and then building a relationship with them. People have a hard time understanding what protective intelligence is unless they have this kind of personal conversation where then they get to hear what it really means and how it might benefit them. So that's mostly how we get our clients is, is they've had that kind of private conversation where perhaps we've talked about a, a case study that we've done or a client and, and they hear about it and that's when they come to us. So I'm very thankful for the word of mouth. But yes, that's that's how it happens for us. You talked earlier about doing these vulnerability assessments, but I guess overall, if you were to assess the balance of your workload are you mostly doing the vulnerability assessments or do you have clients also coming to you that say, hey, there's this known threat that I really need you to help me mitigate? Yes, I would say a lot of it is the known threat uh, to help mitigate, which I talk a lot about the proactive side of things because I want to prevent bad things from happening. But unfortunately, bad things happen every day to good people. And so a lot of the times I am investigating or pursuing action on my clients' cases or on their behalf. Um, for example, meeting with law enforcement agents or civil litigation attorneys who might be able to support the case because it's not always me. It's, you know, I have to create this team to fight whatever the threat or risk is. And sometimes that includes other people. But I would say a lot of it is also just being available for my clients because bad things happen the least expected times. So sometimes that's jumping into those things very quickly and then being able to finish simple things like background checks or due diligence beginning of the week. And then I'll spend the rest of the week kind of working on things that require a lot more attention and just a lot more actual work. Is the goal oftentimes or most of the time the physical protection of your client and their family? Or are you also attempting to protect financial assets and, and other property? I was just going to say financial assets would probably be the number one physical assets, uh, as well as their protection online. I mean, people's money, their hard-earned assets that, that are very accessible to, to cyber criminals, especially I go back to the impersonation. It seems like such a simple problem to have when you're an ultra high net worth individual, celebrity or a business executive, somebody wants to be you. And not only because they are jealous of what you have, but also because they might be able to convince somebody to give them money thinking it's you. And I see that so often. It varies. But I always say personnel, as far as your team, as well as your family, because people don't realize as well that their social media is creating security concerns for their family, for their kids, and considering all aspects of the security system. Yeah, I guess where I was going with the physical protection is that the doxing issue is such a huge problem today. And it's it's becoming harder to hide, I guess, where you live. Yes. My home is blurred on Google, even though I know there's no point in that <laughs> just because I can do it. You know, not that it doesn't mean somebody can still drive by my house and see it, but 
I absolutely try to limit my online footprint as much as possible because I know it not only puts me at risk, but my family, especially with the work we do. We upset some people sometimes and they're not the best of people, (laughs) but the best of intentions. So we try to limit it considering the physical and the cyber threat. I think this might have been off Wikipedia, but I found this term called red team analysis. It seems like it summed up a big part of your job. Maybe you can comment on this as as I kind of give you what was listed. It mentions that you identify security threats to the client by looking from the outside in. And that includes really two main areas. One is physical security assessments, such as observing the client's schedule or transportation route, and then determining the points of vulnerability. And then the second aspect was cyber stalking the client, as you mentioned earlier, through open source research to determine how much sensitive information is available to potential attackers. Does that sound like a pretty good assessment? Yeah, that's pretty good. Purple team isn't an official term, but I would consider myself a purple teamer. It is out there and on the web, not the only one saying it. It's a good combination of of the two. I feel restricted when I'm stuck with only one side, red or blue. Um, So I do like to kind of bounce back and forth. But the red team is probably way more of what I do most of the time. What is listed there is great. We've mentioned OSINT a little bit. So is most of your work taking place in the open source intelligence environment? Or do you guys have tricks up your sleeve that maybe only people in your profession have access to. I can't tell you that, can I? (laughs) I think that's our answer right there. And what are they? (laughs) And where where can we find that? I cannot confirm or deny. Okay. (laughs) The politically correct answer to this is my work is almost completely open source intelligence, um, which people tend to think of as only the internet, but it's not. Um, It includes a lot of other things. As, As long as it's legally viewable by anybody without ownership of said account or property, then I can view it and analyze it. But I also, of course, as as a private investigative licensed in Texas, I have access to things like Thomson Reuters Clear, which gives me more of a view of criminal record. I have an account with Docket Alarm because I like to know about legal filings and that allows me access to every current legal filing. Um, So when I'm looking at somebody, I'm not only looking at their basic printout that you might get from TLO or IDI, if you guys are familiar with those, but I'm actually getting a much broader view of the activities of this person in the history. So if that answers it, but I've got lots of friends, if you've got questions. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. <laughs> you know She's got, I mean. She knows people in places. I know people in places, yes. <laughs> I love that. As long as the purpose is for the better, you know, for the good of, of things, then then yes. Not we, just stalking some ex or... No. Yeah, right. No. Nobody's abusing it. <laughs> and I always stalk my clients first. So I'm like, <laughs> I know everything about you. <laughs> I know your intentions. And, you know, we are selective with who we work for because it can be powerful when you really create these kind of products about somebody and about what there is about them. So we, we only use our powers for good around here. I like that you're sort of doing it to both of them. It's like they may be coming to you to check in on maybe somebody else, but you're also checking on them before you take them on as a client. And there's been people I've had to say, I'm so sorry, I could help you with this, but I'm not going to. Right. They may just <laughs> be know? high risk or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and just um, to be honest, you know, my prior employer, I didn't feel morally aligned with some of the projects we worked on and, and some of the decisions that were made. And so that's a big reason why Project ZF exists and why ZFIS exists, because I care about what we work on and I care about who we support and who's deriving strength from, from what we provide, because I think there's a lot of toxic people out there that that really aren't, aren't afraid to do do wrong and do harm to others. I mean, that's just a, completely against our values. And so if I look at somebody and I think that they may not morally align with us, uh, whether they've hurt others, they've defrauded others, they've claimed credit for things they don't deserve, we tend to keep a little distance and 
and try to support organizations that we know are doing good and are really doing good. Now, unsurprisingly, the true crime genre is the largest genre of podcasting. And, <laughs> and I, I'm convinced, I think a lot of it is people are so fascinated with human behavior. So I wanted to get into the psychology topic a little bit. How much of what you do in your investigative work is leveraging psychological an understanding of psychology and how people think getting into the mind of the criminal. It absolutely is. It, it is in so many ways. Yes, just yes and all of that. But where do I begin? Because part of it is knowing where to look. Uh, for example, I know that organized criminals know how to hide from the government and regulatory authorities. That's how they become criminal organized enterprises. But they're not hiding from little old me on the internet. Okay, so there's things I can view, things they don't even realize exist that can create a package or a profile about who they are and their activities. And like you said, their psychology and is this intentional and because those things matter in an investigation. So I really have to determine, is this person doing something illicitly intentionally? Are they complicit or are they just stupid? Like there's a couple things that matter um, in how I analyze their activities and what, what, what's happened, but also just knowing the, especially with human trafficking, how does somebody get trafficked and how, can we prove that they got trafficked? Because to prove that they got trafficked, you need evidence, uh, whether it's through forensic interviews with the victim or there's physical evidence, which a lot of the times there isn't. And there's a lot of times that physical evidence of trafficking looks like a lot of different decisions could have been made by the victim. And there's ways you have to prove intention. And proving intention, obviously, is, is through the psychology of their behavior and through the behavior of what business transactions they decide to make and business partners. Who is that? How long have they known them? How did they meet? Uh, what do they have in common? Is what they have in common that they like to traffic women? <laughs> and I think I know a little bit about who they are psychologically. But if their business partner is somebody who has been in business for 20 years and cares about compliance and helps people, then maybe I can think to myself, this person maybe made a mistake or got into a situation, a business situation that happens. You know, you partner up with the wrong person and all of a sudden you don't even know where your business money is going. I've had clients that 18 years after working with somebody, they realize that person's bad. And so it's just really figuring out their intention, I guess I would say. And so that's really interesting that you bring up the psychological factor of it. And continuing with that theme. So I imagine it's got to be exhausting to do this, but you know, what, what is it like for you personally? Cause you do, you have to get inside the mind of a criminal. And I, I would imagine sometimes you step back and you think, wow, I just, I don't really like how I feel right now. Did you ever find yourself needing to take a break? That's a great question. For me, this comes from a very personal passion. I was that little kid that was victimized by an adult for multiple years, physically, sexually, emotionally abused. And I was unfortunately one of many victims. And so he went to prison that when I was 15 for the, his crimes against others. I didn't know how the criminal justice system worked. And I went to the wrong state to testify as a borderline kid and a border, state borderline kid. And they said, you have to do it again in your own state to count. And so at 15, I just was broken. I knew he was going to prison anyway. I said, no, thanks. And I left and I joined the army and never talked about it again. 10 years after the abuse, they found me and they said, instead of being released, he's being extradited. If you testify, he might get more time. If you don't, he's walking out on time served. And I knew he had gotten a slap on the wrist because all of us were 14 to 15 years old. And so he totally got away with everything. And so this time it was about justice for me. And it was about justice for his other victims who still weren't in great places and still hurting and terrified of running into him in the grocery store. So I spent 18 months every, thir every 30 days looking at his ugly mug and, you know, testifying and 
It took that long, and he was finally convicted April 1st of last year. He's now fighting a clerical error, beautiful criminal justice system, so we're back in court. And so I'm passionate about helping people through trauma. I'm passionate about going after these criminals that get away with things for so long because they are charismatic or they have money or the victims are too afraid to speak up or too damaged to speak up or people don't believe them because they have mental health issues and drug addictions. And, and, you know, it's like, I've, I've witnessed it. I've been through it and I just want to help others get out of that. And so that, so I don't get tired of it. I honestly don't, you know, I go to take a shower and I turn on that chapter. You guys can look it up. It's this quirky, goofy little British guy that tells murder mysteries (laughs) and I love it. And it's like, you know, it just, it doesn't phase me in that kind of way. It's just like getting to the end point and seeing the justice made or seeing somebody restored, it just makes it all worth it to me. That's like where I get my fulfillment from. Good wow. for you. That's amazing. So long story short. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Wow. I guess as, as much as you can tell us, what is the most common attempted crime that you see that you're trying to protect against? Is there a particular fraud. tactic or particular, it's fraud? It's fraud, but you know, fraud is such a, di- what is it called? There's a lot of things that fall into fraud. Either fraud's an umbrella, there's securities fraud, there's investment fraud, there's intentional fraud. And it's a broader phrase, but I think that, that that's what happens, whether they're trying to steal money from you, get you to invest in them, and then they run off with it. Becoming a business partner, but lying to that person about who you are or your skills or your your background, you know, that's fraud. And so that's what I see most of the time is people trying to get away with something like that. Is there anything that has surprised you thus far in, in the work that you've been doing? I mean, yes. Uh, what, <laughs> there's a lot can, of surprises around the rabbit hole. Uh, I mean, what, you, what, what you can tell us, I guess. I think what surprised me is I've had clients where say I do this vulnerability assessment and I hand them this, I, I like to joke about sliding the vanilla folder across the table and just locking eyes like, this is what I know. <laughs> this is what else, what's out there. And, and it's never to embarrass a client. It's to show them that if I can see it, so can your donor base. So can your potential employees, your team. This is stuff that's out there and needs to get mitigated. And it's never too embarrassed, but it is sometimes embarrassing. And I guess what surprises me is that some clients have actually want to get away from me because I know too much. (laughs) But I'm like, no, 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 I'm here to help. Like, let me get get you away from this dirt. And they're like, no, I like being in this dirt. Like, leave me alone. So just seeing people who they kind of want to know what's out there about them, but they also don't want to change their ways or improve their security system or improve their team morals or anything like that. Like they kind of just want to stay in the dirt that they're in. Um, and that always kind of surprises me where I'm like, Oh, I see <laughs> you knew that was there and you don't care. That surprises me. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? My is the world's only all in one app that gives you back control of your privacy. By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using dating apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each pseudo also includes a private web browser with add-in tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. To learn more, visit mysudo.com. That's mysudo.com. Stay private. 
So we've talked about sort of the types of clients that you have, celebrities, powerful business professionals, politicians. So if we sort of step away from that, most of our listeners are probably, they don't fall into that bucket. So for the average person out there, how much of our lives can be found online that we don't even know about? And what can we do to mitigate that? I think the perception that celebrities have more online about them than regular people is actually completely false. You think you're safe because it's just little old me. Nobody's looking at me. You know, that's nothing's going to be there. And maybe you're a little more lax on your security settings on your social media or how many times you've gotten a new app. And when it says, do I have access to this information? You don't check what it's actually asking for. And it actually just got everything. And, you know, even the apps that you're saying no to, They just bought that through the back door from the other app you said yes to. And so just actually thinking about what you're saying yes to as far as access online, you know, using a VPN to protect your IP address and just protect your your search history. You know, like it's just um, keeps you a little bit separated from what you're doing. And just knowing that when you post, for example, I always hear the stickers on the back of the minivan that have son with the soccer ball, daughter in the ballerina skirt big old dog, mom and dad, and like a a beach or something. You're like, you just told me (laughs) your kids in soccer. One of your kids is in ballet. You might even have your kids like, I'm a mom of this school. And people don't think about those giving information to criminals. Yeah, I've heard people saying you have to watch out for that because somebody could use it to go up to your child and use it to kind of sound like, I know things yes. about you. I'm They're a family friend. Their backpack. Yep. If I see Connor on a backpack, I'm like, hey, Connor, you right. remember me? I'm your mom's friend. Yep. And he's like, I mean, do I be rude? Or And kids don't always understand or know. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or I can show up at a soccer game at a local elementary school. And maybe you're not a parent that shows up to those things. Well, I am now. So I see that. I mean, it's just a way that predators, whether it's a child predator, whether it's somebody who wants to break into your home, they know your schedule now. They know your routine. I mean, it really exposes a lot of information. It's the same with geotagging your photos and posting them on Facebook. You're giving people a routine of your life. And that could become really dangerous if somebody's targeting you or even just trying to find a victim of opportunity. You know, they they look for things that they realize you're not self-aware. They realize you don't know about cybersecurity, physical security, and they target that. You know, they're not going to attack somebody who's kind of watching their surroundings like the hawk and and isn't staring at their phone and doesn't have an online identity, it's going to be somebody who's easier target. Yeah. And I know one thing it's so common to hear is people are like, well, I can't do anything about it, or it's already out there. I've heard that a lot recently because of the threads app that has come out from Instagram. There's a lot of issues with that. And people are like, well, Instagram, Facebook, they all have my stuff anyway. So what's the big deal? It's just one more app. Like how is it just too late? Is it really too late? Or is there any way to combat that? It's not too late. I mean, I'm personally only on LinkedIn. I do not use any other social media and it's for privacy. I don't need everybody knowing every detail of my life or what the inside of my house looks like or my front door or anything like that. People tend to post these things and not really consider it. But no, it's not too late. And you can even if you don't have the preference to delete all of your social media, which frees up a lot of time, you guys, if you get some new hobbies. But You can go in and change your security settings. Your security and your privacy settings are going to become your best friend if you're trying to mitigate your online footprint without completely erasing it. You can go in and say, I don't want anybody to see my profile picture unless they're connected to me. Great choice. I don't want people to see my contact information, which your contact information most often includes your phone number or your email. And with a phone number and an email, I can figure out where you live in like two seconds. So 
people don't realize those things are connected as well, but you should be restricting those. And if you're not, then you know, you're not taking steps to secure yourself. From that side of it where I know a lot of the controversy with threads right now is they're just like, oh, there's all of this data listed that they're just taking from you. And that's where people are sort of like, well, Instagram already has this or this other app already has this. So what's the big deal? Like I'm an Instagram user and I'm like, well, I refuse to get threads because of what I've read and there's a lot going on with it. But at the same time, am I already in trouble quote, because I have Instagram and that data is already out there? Is there any way to come back? Instagram, Facebook and threads are run by the same company. Right. So yes, I mean, your data is already available to that company and what they choose to do with that company is based on what that company's agreements are. And so I would say when you're looking at apps that are owned by the same brand, you could think that way. But I think it's important that people just make that decision that, yeah, they oh, they already have access. Like, okay, well, why? Why do they have access? Because I agreed to it. Because I approved right. it. I, I set the settings to it. Um, and so maybe just taking that thought, saying, oh, they already have it. Like, well, what can I do about it now? Yeah. Um, because it's still important moving forward. And it can be taken out. You can request that data be redacted. Um, like I told you guys, my house is Google blurred, even though I know how easy it is to find deed records. And I know that if somebody wanted to, they could, it just gives me a little bit of ease uh, with my online identity. And so I choose to do it. And so it's, there's simple things you can do. You can redact your information from truth finder and what are all those little apps or, you know, websites where you type background investigation, you pay $2 and you learn everything about someone, you know, you can go on and actually redact your own data. So when somebody does that with you, they don't find you. And so I I just think it's being proactive and changing it. Yeah, I guess even though Meta owns all of these, just giving them another app is just like more data you're just providing to them. It's like, well, you've already done your operator. Yeah, don't make it worse. (laughs) A little more finer print at the bottom, you know, like they're gonna, they're gonna do what they're gonna do to try to access what they want. So maybe just Um, don't make it worse. Every time you hit yes on that, yes, I agree to any access to data, like you've just opened the floodgates on yourself. What about the balance between, we like to say, we could kind of break the privacy market into the extreme privacy people, and then we call them the normies. So yes. what we're trying to find or draw this fine line between being paranoid and just being practically cautious, if you will. How does an individual conduct their own, I guess, personal risk assessment for privacy where they're not becoming so preoccupied with it that gets in the way of living a good life, right? How do you do that? Google yourself. Put your name in some quotation marks, your first and last name, and type address at the end or type phone or type account and look at everything that you can find in the first one to three pages of Google on yourself. Um, And it might surprise you. And that's where you can kind of decide, okay, do I want somebody to be able to Google my name? It doesn't mean I'm afraid somebody's targeting me. I'm not afraid that I have some serial killer on the loose coming to find my house. I'm concerned about becoming a victim of opportunity. And I don't want to be the easiest victim ever whether it's a physical crime, a money-induced crime, a a sexual crime, any of it, I just want to reduce the risk for me and my family. I'm doing my search right now and I'm like, okay, so far so good. These are not me. (laughs) Sometimes you have to add whatever state you live in, add the two letters. So you said do your quotes though, right? You said quotes around your name. Yes, your name, no quotes after. So just type quote, first, last, end quote, space, two letters of your state, something like that. Perhaps your business name depends on it. Because if you think about it, somebody ran into you in a coffee shop, they probably know your name. They might not know anything else. If somebody met you at work, they probably know where you work. 
So they could Google your name plus your business name. Like I said, you're in the Rotary Club because you put it on the back of your car. I can find you a lot easier. It's those little things that people don't really think matters that really makes it a lot easier to narrow down the information online. Because like you said, you run into the wrong person, but it's very quick and easy to narrow that down. Awesome. So as we wrap up, let's take our time and kind of shift gears a little bit because I know, Olivia, you've got this other project that you're working on regarding uh, human trafficking survivors. It's kind of related, of course. So we've talked a little bit about that already. So maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about what you're doing there. I'd love to. Like I said, any chance I can to kind of talk about what we care about and our mission, I'm, I'm, I'm always grateful for that. And so. it's good timing because that movie, The Sound of Freedom, is blowing up right now. So I think yeah. this is a great time. I'm excited I to hear about this. I think people want to know what they can do because I like the quote, when you know better, you can do better. And just a lot of people don't know what's happening. And so now that they're kind of seeing it in the media, they're kind of saying, okay, what can I actually do? So I do think that that's a, it's a great time for us to talk about what the normal people can do. <laughs> you know, what can we do? to help people. But so Project ZF, like I said, my husband and I are both army veterans. When we were kind of planning his transition out of the service last summer, we needed to find our own place. Corporate America wasn't it. I didn't feel like I fit in, you know, same with the big old buff, cranky infantryman, you know, it's just difficult to settle in and find your place and to feel still fulfilled and like you're giving your service to somebody else and to, to our country and community. And so uh, we developed Project ZF. ZFIS is my side of the house. As you guys know, that's what we've been talking mostly about. Um, and that's just my specialty. So that's what I focus on. My husband, Ralph, he's, I was jokingly say, partner in, in business and in life. Sometimes I joke and say crime, but some people don't like those jokes. <laughs> I know you guys will. His side of the house is the ZF Tactical Training Center and ZF Leadership Development. We have our hearts and minds set on a very large lot in the wilderness of Texas, where we will be placing the basic range things that you think of a flat range for, for weapons proficiency. Um, but our niche is going to be a subterrain um, training facility. So we're hoping to do up to uh, one kilometer. There is not many of these available. And so that's kind of what we're focusing on based on just a need to train uh, in those types of environments that it's just not available. And you guys know, uh, the more you train, the more confident you are and the more proficient you are at what you're doing. Um, so when we see law enforcement not perform and people get upset with law enforcement, I'm saying, thinking to myself, it's just the availability of training and resources that creates those problems. So we want to kind of resolve that. And that's kind of where our team, our board members come in. We have Mark Eckerd. He just recently retired as a command sergeant major of USACOM. And so he was kind of in charge of the cool guys, if you want to say that. And so he kind of guides us a lot on that end of things. And we have Lee Ofton. He was British military, came to the U.S., helped Halliburton set up their executive protection program and things when they were first getting into Iraq and eventually moved to Mexico. And now he runs the Kindness Games and he works in security. And so we kind of have a diverse team that helps us solve a lot of a variety of problems. And last but not least is the our nonprofit, our 501c3, um, the Relentless Revival Safe Haven. And that's our passion project. That's where Ralph and I meet in the middle, where we both really care about what we're doing and we kind of support each other in different ways. But eventually, we'll be a long-term restorative care program for survivors of human trafficking. So they'll come to us for 18 to 24 months of specialized therapy for trauma and addiction, uh, animal-assisted therapy, art therapy, and then economic empowerment through guided networking, career coaching, and internships. Um, so that's kind of big picture, long term. We'd also love to have an emergency placement facility on site um, that can just act as temporary housing for women who are applying to long term. Because believe it or not, it's like sometimes it takes a month 
to just get somebody into long-term care where they have nowhere to live. They don't have a phone to apply or, or meet, you know, and so it's just a really difficult shuffle of these women in and out of domestic violence shelters and, and things that are just re-traumatizing. So we want to solve that, especially solve the issue that a lot of long-term care programs don't allow women who have drug addictions or diagnose mental health <laughs> conditions. And, you know, for me, it's just who are we helping if that's our rules? Um, and so we want to create a place that the women who are really at a place that they need help um, can come to us. Uh, so, so that's who we are. <laughs> that's Project ZF. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking it up online and it looks like it's relentlessrevival.org. Is that right? Yes. Perfect. Yes, it is. Awesome. Yeah, yeah it that looks describes like you can a lot right about now. our vision. So there's an organization called Green Magic Homes. They literally look like hobbit houses. They're actually cheaper than building stick-filled tiny homes. So we plan to have 14 hobbit houses, community farm and garden. And it's kind of a place where especially victims of organized crime will be so far out away from the city in restricted access control and kind of in a place where they're not afraid their trafficker is going to be coming after them. You know, they're not going to run into their trafficker while trying to go to the grocery store. And the, the program is going to be a bit longer because we really think it's important to have that decompression time, that time to actually figure out where you are, self-assessment and team assessment of some women have been in, involved in traffic so long that they might not even be able to read. They might not have a license. They might have, you know, there's a lot of issues that people don't realize that that person now needs to build a life on what they feel is nothing. And so providing those resources and access um, in a longer term way so they actually have time to, you know, figure it out and to to learn what they care about and what their passion is and that they have a right to chase that passion and then helping them pursue it is kind of what we want to focus on. So I think when people think about that sort of situation, it's like, oh, it's third world children, but really it's happening here and it's happening with anybody. And so what are some ways do you think that the everyday person, I think before we were talking, you were calling it like the suburban or the the suburban trafficking (laughs) or something, ways that we like can protect ourselves online to not become a part of that. That's a great question. So when you think about trafficking, there is of course the abduction version of it where, where, you know, protecting yourself online is important, protecting your identity, protecting uh, where you live and where you work. But the other side of preventing yourself or people you love from being trafficked is self-value, really understanding what healthy relationship looks like and, and knowing when maybe there's red flags of controlling relationship and, and things like that, because that's a lot of the times how young women and young men end up being trafficked is a relationship or a family member actually traffics them. It's a lot easier to get into that place than people really understand. And so just knowing when, what the red flags are of control, of abuse, what it might look like. And you guys might be able to spot somebody a little bit easier if you think about, do they have a brand on their body that maybe another person they're with has has the same brand? And it doesn't mean a hot stick and poke brand. It could be a tattoo. It could be things like that. And then somebody not having control or access to their own money, somebody who doesn't isn't allowed to go out with their friends. And you start to notice things that somebody has a lot of control over, over not only their physical location, but their financial status, their vehicle things of that nature. And maybe they call them nicknames, just little things like that. You might notice with a trafficking victim, that's not a big dragging her down the street because she just got kidnapped version because they'll come into stores together and they live lives. And like I said, there's been subdivisions where they find out there's been 15 women being trafficked out of one house and none of the neighbors have noticed because they go one at a time in and out of the house. I mean, they know how to conceal what they're doing. And so it really takes just that situational awareness and analyzing the situation to, to kind of see what's going on, to really see it. 
And you mentioned before we were recording that usually sometimes what they do is they isolate the victim away from family, away from friends. And before they know it, they're sort of being moved around in a situation they weren't expecting. Yes. And then how do you leave when you don't have any money? You haven't talked to your mom and dad in a year and none of your friends have kept up with you. You know, maybe he controls your social media and your phone. Um, and so now you're at this place and you might have, he might've encouraged you or made you steal something and you got caught. So now you have a theft charge. Or uh, a lot of the times I see women who are forced to, tr- to um, transport other victims. And so they'll drive a car with no late, like no plates, no registration, no license. And then when they do get caught and pulled over, they'd get the charges for the crimes, not their trafficker. And so these women probably sometimes have a criminal history. And those things can be expunged through efforts in the courts, but they don't all know that. And so they kind of think to themselves, okay, I've got a record. I've got no money, nowhere to go. What am I going to do? Is this better than death or living on the streets? And sometimes the answer is yes. And so unfortunately, they don't know that the resources are there and and they get stuck in it. Like you said, it happens fast. (laughs) Time flies. Yeah. I think you mentioned at the beginning, it's hard for you guys to sort of take out the head of these (laughs) issues. So you're trying to like do what you do by knocking down the legs of a table in a sense. And kind of trying to do a more network-based analysis versus trying to go after one person, the head person. Because a lot of the times, even the lower level people, you take one person out of the deal, they're just going to replace that puzzle piece and keep going. They lose people all the time in organized crime, whether it's guns, money, drugs, people, it's a dangerous game. And so people are, they're just very quick to just replace it and continue on. And so you kind of have to look at it in a a network-based way and figure out how to take an organization apart versus just get him arrested, if you know what I mean. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly $4.5 million, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. And Suno Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. Built for developers by developers from identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Suno Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit pseudoplatform.com. That's pseudoplatform.com. So Olivia, so the, I guess the umbrella organization for this work you're doing in human trafficking is Project ZF, zfisolutions.com? No. So, so Project ZF is just what we call the whole plan, okay. the whole concept and, and everything we're trying to do. They all work together. It confuses people when we say all the names. But we actually have four entities, four business entities. One, the the Relentless Revival Safe Haven Inc. is our 501c3 separate organization, totally on its own. We built the vision of Project ZF, business-minded way. I say that with air quotes. I know you guys can't all see me. But because we want to be able to support our own charity efforts in the long term with our own revenue versus relying on donors and government grants and things like that, because we see great organizations that fight so hard for the money and it goes to the wrong places a lot of the times. And, you know, sometimes orgs will be open for 13 years, 10 years, and they lose a government grant and they have to shut down. I mean, they don't have any other option. So for us, we're building it using ZFIS. Uh, We make money with the tactical training center. We will make money. And instead of living some crazy lavish life, which is just not an interest of ours, we hope to be able to fund our own charity. And so 
that's what it is, logistically speaking. And Project ZF is just a term we use to kind of lump them all together for people. I love that. You're using just so much of your military background and this technical background that you have, and you guys are just doing so much good with it. I love it. That's what makes us happy. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I feel unfulfilled. The depression kicks in if I'm not working on something that matters. If I'm working on something that's pointless or even restrictive, it just drives me crazy as a person. I, I get antsy and I want to do more. And so putting ourselves in a place where we're not restricted by anybody, by a boss deciding the project's worthy of our work. We just decide and do what we think is important. And we're pretty happy. Yeah. And <laughs> you're doing perfect, it from all aspects. You've got this like protective intelligence side with big clients, but then you've also got down to the nonprofit helping the actual yes. victims. It's great. And the Safe Haven Project, it sounds like a huge undertaking. When do you think you'll have that up and running? We love to under promise and over deliver. So we keep dates a little vague. We have had the business entities created for about two years now. The last year has really been pushing towards finding the right investor because what we would love to do is find an investor interested in purchasing the land and working towards construction, but somebody who morally aligns and wants to be part of the vision, part of the mission. We want somebody who wants to come to our events and who fits in with all of the crowd. Project ZF is a safe haven for veterans. It's a safe haven for trauma survivors. It's Project ZF as a total. We care about people. So we kind of want somebody who also cares. And we've had a lot of conversations. The money and interest is there. It's not always moral alignment. And so it's kind of just waiting for that day that we get the call from people we've built relationships with who either they're interested or somebody is interested in kind of pushing towards the funding aspect. But like I said, we've got the property. We're obsessed with it. You know, of course, we'll work with whatever we get, but we have the land that we'd love to have and vendors aligned to begin construction as soon as we're able to accomplish that financial step. In in the world of this trafficking awareness, do you work with other organizations? I mean, the one that always comes to mind for everybody is that Operation Underground Railroad. Do you guys ever collaborate or do you get help from each other or is it everybody's just sort of on their own, but doing what they can? We love to work with other organizations. I think that we are stronger as a team. We can all try to get the credit for things and and the pats on our backs, but that's the last thing on our minds. So we love to connect with other organizations. Specifically, I'll say I love Flanders Fields. We fight monsters, National Child Protection Task Force, Raven. Those are organizations that I would support in a heartbeat. There are some that I would never support and work with. There's a lot that take credit for things that they didn't do. And they don't think about the effects of their actions and things like that. And so there's a couple that I won't. <laughs> but I'm, I'm in the mindset that we all have different skills, resources, tools, thoughts, perspectives, backgrounds. And wouldn't we be stronger if we all came to the same place and said, okay, what can I help with? Stay in my lane. Can you help with this? And and that's what makes the, the magic happen. I mean, these are people I can call in the middle of the night and say, I, I have a, a woman who I need driven two and a half hours to a safe house. And it happens in a heartbeat because that's not my side of things. But because they have that skill set and ability, I can lean on them when I need it and when survivors need it. I'm huge on community. I think there's a lot of competition, which is such a weird word for nonprofit space, but there's a very strange sense of competition in some circles, and we're just not about that at all. So whether it's for protective intelligence or on the human trafficking side, how can people get in touch with you? I am on LinkedIn. If you look at me there, Olivia Arnott's CFIS and the Relentless Revival have LinkedIn pages as well as websites. Like you said, the Relentless Revival website is relentlessrevival.org. 
for the protective intelligence side, it's Z-F-I-S. The S is the first letter of solutions ending in an S.com. We're trying to change the domain soon. <laughs> and um, otherwise, email, you know, Olivia at CFISolutions.com. Just reach out. And I love to plug people in, especially when people want to do good things and they have skills or efforts that they can provide. I love doing introductions and, and getting people involved. So I, I encourage anybody to reach out. You mentioned you're looking for donors. What's the best way for someone to reach out to you for a donation? That's a great question. If they'd like a tax write-off and they wanted to go to the nonprofit, they should go to relentlessrevival.org or email me. And every penny that goes into Relentless Rival will never touch our pockets. That is for supporting survivors. And we are moving towards the project, uh, the purchase of the land which can go a multitude of ways. We'd love to purchase that as nonprofit efforts, uh, at least in part. So if somebody has a couple thousand acres they want to donate, let me know. <laughs> but yes, yeah, the big scary number, we love to to give this out. Uh, but basically for the land acquisition, which we're looking at 5,000 acres and construction of both Tactical Training Center and Safe Haven with first year of operations is 26 million. And so that's what we're trying to achieve. That's go big or go home. This is going to be the training center that people need to go to. And the safe haven is going to be something that actually creates a long lasting impact because that's what's important to us. And we want something that changes lives forever and creates lives and legacies and and things people can really be proud of. So that's it. Good for you. Yeah, you're doing some great work. This has been Yeah, this has been really informative. Um, I guess as we wrap up, any parting words, any words of wisdom you want to leave us? It's not that hard to be cyber aware and physically aware of your surroundings and little differences can really protect you so much and your family, your kids, your spouse, um, and just taking those extra steps to know your value and your worth as an individual, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a business executive, whoever you are, you're a person and, and you matter and taking those extra steps to keep yourself safe and protected from danger in different ways can really make the difference when an unexpected incident might occur. <laughs> Yeah. Well, great having you on. Thanks for uh, taking some time. Thank you guys for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks for taking some time to talk with us. And we do wish you luck. It sounds like you're doing some great stuff. So we're all behind you. We support you 100%. If you guys ever have questions or anybody listening has questions on cyber privacy, cybersecurity, like I said, my email is always open and I'll respond and I I love to help. So thank you guys for letting me chat and sharing about our mission. I I always am grateful for any chance to do that. So I appreciate it. It was good to talk with you. Yep. Thanks, Olivia. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Chris Rock. Well, not the Chris Rock you might be thinking of, but nonetheless, a celebrity in his own profession. We'll be discussing the shadowy world of cyber mercenaries. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right. 